If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been in a topical series over the last seven weeks uh, about being distinct, about being the people of God, about what does it mean to be in the household of God and in the household of faith. And this is part six this morning. When I was uh, a kid, I saw my mother making a cake or something, and she had this contraption. It was like a tin cylinder, and she would pour powdered sugar in it, and she would crank this knob, and this loopy thing, like a jump rope, would spin around, and magical powdered sugar would just float beautifully onto the cake. And uh, have you ever seen one of those? Just raise your hand if you've seen one of those. What's it called? A sifter? Yeah. And I, I thought it was really cool, and so I convinced my little brother the next day uh, to make it snow in our living room. He needed to pound on the side of a, a baby powder, jumbo-sized baby powder thing, and so he would hit it, and it would spout clouds of dust. As we marched around the living room, I would sift and sift and sift, and the snow would fall and the powder would fly up, and we did this for 30 minutes until the entire living room uh, was a uh, snow-covered landscape. It was beautiful uh, until my mother walked in uh, and scolded me for getting into the sifter. I thought it was just this wonderful machine, and I waited for just the right moment to use it. I'm not giving any kids in the room any ideas, uh, but... It was a fantastic contraption, this thing. And this series uh, we've been into for the past few weeks uh, has brought us to a point where we acknowledge that the church in America is going through a sifting. Um, It's going through a sifting where it's no longer culturally acceptable to be in Christ and to have the convictions that the Bible speaks God's truth and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so, as the cultural winds have shifted and are blowing in our face, uh, there is the redefining of the word tolerance. Right? Right? Tolerance used to mean that you accept every viewpoint and that there is room at the table for everyone to share and exchange their ideas. That's what tolerant used to mean. The tolerant means today that you will accept our viewpoint or you will face the consequences. There's the speaker. It works now. We've been having trouble with this speaker. Uh, and so, sorry for that. Uh, so, as we are experiencing the cultural winds in our face, it's no longer acceptable. It's no longer culturally normal to go to church. And so listen, the church is experiencing and has been experiencing over the last 15 to 20 years a sifting where people who once were in the room are no longer in the room. People who were once walking with the Lord are no longer walking with the Lord. People who once held strongly to doctrine and to truth and to Jesus and to the message and to the faith as defined not by us, but by our forefathers and by church fathers and by church history and by good doctrine that we've walked by for thousands of years. It no longer has those connotations. People are free now to define truth and accept truth however they want to. 
And if they want to say what used to be wrong is just from an old book and it doesn't really matter to us any longer, that's sort of the norm that we hear. Listen, I can't go uh, a month without seeing people that used to walk with the Lord now denying the faith. People who used to believe strongly in biblical doctrine and core convictions of what it means to be a Christ follower are no longer following those things any longer. There is a sifting, and you can look around the room, and there may be a time when the people who are around us worshiping, singing, praying, the people who are around us giving and serving and reading and leading in worship and uh, teaching in worship and, and are walking with us will no longer be here. I'll never forget in one of my first Bible classes in 1993, brand new in the ministry, surrounded by a class of hermeneutics where we learn to take the Bible and distill the principles that God is speaking and transfer them to a common current culture without compromising the Word. A wonderful class. And one of the professors on the first few weeks after we walked through the syllabus said, look around, take note, Statistically, only one out of ten in this room will be walking with Christ by the end of their life. And so I took note and I drew the names. I wrote the names in the back of that hermeneutic spiral bound notebook uh, and I wrote all their names down. And after 15 years of ministry, I had crossed off a dozen names out of 21. Today, there are maybe six of us from that class in gospel ministry. Statistically, one out of ten of you will depart from the faith. Will walk away at some point in your life. Statistically, may not be in this room, but in the body of Christ, those who persevere to the end. Bible describes the perseverance of the saints. That those who overcome, Jesus said in the church to Revelation, those who continually overcome, those who walk with the Lord and persist through trials and difficulties and temptations and doctrinal swayings and, and disbelieving uh, bad doctrine and untruth and all these different things, people will walk away. And so this series, this Be Distinct series, six powerful weeks of trying to describe to us what God's people look like and what those who are not His people look like. We, we started off with Hosea. He named one of his kids Lo-Ami, which means these are not my people anymore. God said, name your kid, not my people. These, I, they, are not my, they say they're my people. They act like they're my people, but they, they, their behaviors and their beliefs demonstrate that they are Lo-Ami, not my people. Malachi 3, a remnant, a small group, heard the rebuke from the prophet Malachi about 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. And the prophet Malachi, as he preached, rebuked all these areas of cultural Israel. And at the end, on chapter 3, it says, there were a group of people who gathered together and they feared the name of the Lord and they heard the message and they re repented of their sin and they they committed themselves to following the Lord. And the Lord said of those people, those are my people. That's the remnant of my people. 
And so we've walked through over this past six weeks, what does it mean to be His people? What does it mean to walk by faith? What does it mean to, to walk in righteousness? What does it mean to walk in holiness? What does it mean to suffer through persecution? What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be His people? So this morning we're going to look at how you persist in being of His people. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Bible says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Stop there. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, listen, the Spirit says that expressly says, that means clearly, some will depart. What does it mean if they depart? They were in it, and then they're moving out of it. They were in it, they were with us, they were in the church, they were leaders, they were teachers, they were attenders, they were givers, they were servers, they were greeters, they were, they were people in the body, but they left, Paul says to Timothy. They will depart, not only from our fellowships, but from the faith. They are walking away. This should surprise us a little bit because none of us want to depart right none of you if i if i ask does anybody here want to depart from the faith does anybody want to turn their back on jesus who died on the cross and and gives you life and hope and truth and brings order to chaos and healing to your pain and is the the great deliverer the redeemer the the great lover of our souls none of you would say yes I'm looking forward to the day when I can walk away from all of that. But you will. You will. We will. Some of us will. The Bible says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Why? How? What is is happening here? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 helps us understand how it happens and how you can guard against it. Skip down to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Alright, there's a problem, verse 1. There's an answer, verse 16. Some are going to depart. How can you keep them from departing? And how can they keep themselves from departing? Keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself. It's not up to anybody in this room to sift through your life to make sure that you're following good doctrine and good life. That you've got good understanding of the Scriptures and that you're following through with them in your life practice. It's nobody in this room's responsibility to follow you, to look through your your recently watched movies to find out what your browsing history is like to to no one is here the moral police right it's not up to us in this room ultimately someone else will not have to give an account for your life do we have a responsibility to each other absolutely Are we supposed to snatch one another from the fires and and pray for each other and walk with each other and encourage each other and to, as Hebrews says, not neglect the fellowship, the meeting of believers? Are we supposed to walk in that sort of relationship? Absolutely. Yes. We need each other. 
If you remove a fire a log from a fire and you place it over there on a cold night, what will happen to that log? It will grow cold. In the same way, if you take a believer out of fellowship, out of the body, and you place them out there, they will struggle. Some will depart from the faith. So we need each other, but verse 16 makes it very clear, you are to keep watch for yourself. No one will know what sins you're entertaining in your heart. No one will know what your eyes are viewing and your ears are hearing and the thoughts you're entertaining. You must keep watch on yourself, which is practice, what you think, what you believe, and on doctrine, what you're entertaining in your mind about who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be. Listen, we're going to get into this in just a second, really uh, more clearly. But it's never been more easy for you to compromise what you believe. Never. It's never been more easy for you to say, did the Bible really say, you know, that, that we're supposed to live this way and not that way? It's that you've never had a culture screaming at you to become like them more than you do right now. And so compromise will be easy, and we're going to figure out how that happens. But, but I want you to know from the beginning where I'm going with the sermon. Some of you will walk away from the faith altogether completely. And the remedy is that you must watch yourself and you must watch doctrine. Julie alluded to it earlier, John 4. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. He says, listen, the, the, the Father is seeking true worshipers. That should make your ears perk up. Meaning there are not true worshipers. But the Father is seeking true worshipers and they will worship Him how? In spirit and in and in truth, there's not a compromise. There's not a lack of emotion and passion and desire and, and expression. But there's also not a lack of checking your mind out and saying that doctrine doesn't matter. You have to love Jesus the way He reveals Himself. Not the way you hope He would be. You have to love good doctrine and you have to have good practice. The Father seeks those kinds of worshipers that delight in theology and good doctrine and the Word as revealed, as handed down, but also love Jesus passionately. Some will depart. Some will depart. How will they depart? Look at verse 1. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, right? Devoting, it's a big word. Devoting themselves, not just fooling around with, but they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Do you know anybody whose conscience is seared? That things that used to be right are no longer uh, right anymore. Their conscience is so seared that... There is no truth. They're, they can just kind of do whatever they want. If it feels good, they're going to do it because they don't even have... You know, if, if you were to place your fingers on a hot stove, something happens to the senses and in, in you lose feeling. They lose feeling, right? If you continue to behave immorally, if you continue to believe what you want to believe and you don't receive any checks, you're numbed over, you don't feel, your conscience is seared. 
And Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, the way they walk away is they're deceived, they believe the wrong things, and they believe them through insincere people who lie to them. Do you know anybody who insincerely will just throw out things and lie? Of course we do, right? Insincerity, lies, deceit, teachings of demons, uh, they promote a certain way to live, though it is not really found in Scripture. And he's going to get into that in just a minute. What ditch do you tend to go to, right? Have you ever had a car that hits a pothole and then for the next six months pulls to the right or left? Is that just me, right? Like your car just, you let go of the wheel, you just want to see how bad it is today. It's going to pull left or it's going to pull right. We all want to drive on the road. <laughs> Most of us. We want to drive on the road. And we don't want to drive in the ditch. And we don't want to drive in the ditch over here. And there are two sides that most people, their, their car will typically pull toward. The right or the left, right? Um, if, if a person will, either if they're walking away from good doctrine, if they're walking away from the faith, they're going to pull either toward legalism on the left or toward license on the right. What does that mean, legalism and license? Well, a person will depart from the main road of faith by making one of two turns, turning left on the road called legalism or right on the road called license street, right? Legalism is just more rules, more teaching, deeper knowledge, less grace, less love, more programs, more self-righteousness, less cultural engagement, less time with those kinds of people who might corrupt you. Legalism just says more, bigger, defined, stronger. It, it be, starts out good and then it can become so harsh and so demanding and so terrible that if you're not dressed the right way, if you don't wear the right things, if you don't say the right words, if you don't use the right language, if you don't carry the right Bible, if you don't, if you don't do everything the right way, then you you're, have departed from the faith. And we've all known legalistic people who are so smug in their self-righteousness. They know the Word. They know everything that the Bible says, but they're mean and they're hateful and they, they don't associate with those kinds of people. That's when your car pulls to the ditch of legalism. Now, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand because all of us pull toward one of these and none, no ditch is better than the other. Okay? Just the difference in what you tell yourself about your ditch, right? Of course my ditch is better because I'm not like those guys in that ditch. The other ditch is just as bad, right? If your car pulls to the right and you go off in that ditch, license just means antinomianism. There is no law. I can do whatever I want, whatever feels good. If my doctrine is bad, it doesn't matter because it feels good. It feels good for me to say this belief doesn't matter. That I can do this because God doesn't care. He wants me to feel happy and He wants me to be good. And I can, I can drink this and I can smoke that and I can do, I can have all these experiences because there's freedom in Christ. And I can just drive my car into the ditch of license where everything is permissible. Legalism or license. Full expression of your sin nature and bad theology and bad doctrine and bad behavior and immorality. You feel culturally at home right here in this culture. You completely identify with and jump right in with, those are my people, right? Those are my people in that ditch. Uh, and so neither are right. This is what this departure looks like. And I want you to, to notice something about the departure. Because Paul's going to get into some clues in how not to depart. So if you don't want to depart from the faith, if you want to remain, 
I want, to see, I want you to see really clearly that there's a battleground happening in your mind. It starts in your mind. James 1 says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. It starts in your mind. You will ne- no one will ever know it. You'll sit here in these chairs and you'll doubt this and you'll doubt that or you'll dismiss this or you'll justify that. But in your mind where no one else is there, there is a battle raging for truth. And the battle will begin there. Verse 3 says they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's the seat of of that knowledge right there in your mind, that's where the battleground is going to begin, that those who uh, believe and know the truth, they will experience this conflict. Verse 6, those who are being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine you have followed. You see, doctrine is one of those beautiful things. Doctrine is just a word for teaching, the teaching of the Bible. When I say doctrine, all I mean is good theology unadulterated, uncompromised, pure Word of God that doesn't pick and choose what Scriptures you like and which ones you don't like. I mean, if you were to take this book and just say, I don't like this page, and rip out portions, you would have a very thin book. If you were to take a black marker and mark out all the stuff you don't like, but just highlight the things you do like, that is not good doctrine, okay? Now, you would never practically do that, but sure, we do that all the time, right? We see verses we don't like. We see passages we're not for. We see all these things and we just, I, I tend to emphasize this and not that. A few years ago, a very popular Bible teacher in Atlanta, Louis Giglio, was asked to do the presidential inauguration for President Obama. And as his staff dug deeper into Mr. Giglio's life, they found that 20 years ago or more, he had preached a sermon against um, cultural issues, same-sex issues. And it immediately disqualified him from preaching at that inauguration, for being the prayer speaker at that inauguration. And as that issue has heated up for 20 years, his message slowed way down on that message to the point where they couldn't they scoured every one of his very public teachings and couldn't find a single word for over 20 years and his reasoning behind that was it i have intentionally not highlighted that range of teaching what's he saying I chose not, I blacked out that part of the book because it wasn't comfortable, because it wasn't popular, because no one wanted to hear these things. This is not what you do. And I'm not saying that Lou Guglielmo has departed from the faith or anything like that. I'm just saying it's telling when there are messages you won't preach to a culture that needs to hear truth. It's telling. And the battleground begins in your mind. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent, silly myths. Non-biblical, cultural, flowery things. Such as, a couple years ago, a very popular pastor wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that 
huge book, he described that all people will be saved regardless of who they believe in and regardless of, of their doctrine or faith or belief. doesn't matter. Everybody gets saved. This is an irreverent, silly myth. It's an absolute irreverent, silly myth. Why? Why is it that irreverent, silly myth? It suggests that all people everywhere will be saved and experience redemption in heaven. And it's a ridiculous notion when you look at the holiness of God. And the fact that God would crucify His only Son on a cross. Why would God kill His only Son if He didn't have to? If love wins and everybody gets saved in the end, why would you crucify your only Son if it wasn't the only way? And so what the message of love wins does says it doesn't matter about Jesus or the cross. It was just an example. It was just a notion. It was just a metaphor. But it definitely wasn't salvific and it wasn't real because it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what faith you're from, what culture you're born into, what idols you pray to. It doesn't matter what behaviors that a person like a Hitler and a person just a good moral American or anybody anywhere around the world will ultimately end up in heaven because love wins and God just loves everybody. Wouldn't that be great if that were true? But it's not. It's not, the, it's not the words you read in Scripture. It's a myth. Another current example, just a few weeks ago, the Habmakers in Austin, Texas, declared that they were fully willing to reverse thousands of years of Bible and church history and teaching on same-sex issues and fully affirmed a lifestyle that the Bible doesn't affirm. And immediately, thousands of people in our culture just cheered because they were now on their side. And that now these leaders and authorities declared that it's true and it's right. Silly myths. Irreverent. Who's it irreverent to? It's not irreverent to the culture. It's beautiful of them. That we would compromise. It's wonderful. They love that. It's irreverent to the author of life. To the author of the word. It's irreverent. It's silly to the one who penned it. The one who created us. Who we rebelled against. It's, it's irreverent to the father. To compromise his teaching. The battleground begins in your mind. Verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what we're doing right now. We're publicly reading Scripture. Exhortation is another word for preaching. Uh, teaching is, uh, is the same idea, that we are preaching and teaching, declaring truth, reading Scripture. If you don't become a part of something like this, the battleground for your mind can be lost. If God has called someone... Put them in a spiritual authority over you to declare the Word of God to you and that they take that position seriously and God places you under that authority structure. The moment you step outside of that into a, an area where there is no authority spiritually over you, there is no Word over you, there is no person who is passionately preaching and shepherding and praying for you, after you step outside of that, it's like the Wild West for your mind. You can do anything, you can hear ideas, you can entertain them, you struggle. But, but have you ever been in, an, in a service when you feel like, why is this guy speaking to me? <laughs> what is, has he been crawling through my, tr does he know my emails? Why is he preaching the message that I've been needing to hear? Has that never happened to anybody else? 
that the Lord speaks to you clearly and you, th- I am not preparing this message with any particular person in mind. It's just the way the Lord leads and speaks through His Word. But if you step outside of the preaching, teaching, exhortation, the public reading of Scripture, and you become a rogue on your own sort of believer, you may find yourself in verse 1 as one of those who wakes up 20 years from now and realizes that you're far from the faith. Let's rapid fire how we can keep a close watch on ourselves in these last few verses. In these last passages, what's the to-do? How can we... And listen, I don't like a moralistic sermon that just gives you a to-do list. Jesus gives you His righteousness. You don't earn your salvation. If you're not a believer, checking off these boxes won't make you a believer. But if you're a Christ follower, if you're redeemed, born again, and you don't want to be one of those who depart from the faith... This list is for you as you watch yourself. This is verse 16. Watch yourself. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. This is this idea, verse 15 and 16. How do we do that? Number one, verse 6 through 8, you train yourself. You train yourself. Then he says, bodily training is of some value, but training in godliness has value for all things. What's he talking about? Train yourself. How many of you have ever jogged for like a month, right? Anybody? Yeah, there's London. He jogs for a month, right? Some of the others jog for a month. You feel out of shape. But then the first week, you just despise it. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hateful. It's bitter. It's, it's weird. It's gross. You're, you just despise the physical exercise if you've been out of it for a long time. But then after a few weeks, you begin to, hey, I feel pretty good. I can jog a little further. I can go a little bit faster. I'm a little bit better. Once you begin to train yourself, you experience the benefits of it. But it's never pleasant up front. It's never fun. It's never easy. Listen, training yourself spiritually has a lot of those same elements. That you're just, it's not an issue. You're going to be in the Word. You're going to go to a small group. You're going to get involved in a Bible-believing church. Those aren't questions that you have to answer every week. The answer is always yes, because you understand that I'm training myself to be immersed in good doctrine, in good teaching, in good fellowship with good believers. I am training myself, and it's you trust the process, becomes a popular phrase in the city. This is the process that he's laid out. You immerse yourself in these things, you practice these things, you train yourself. You train yourself in all these ways for godliness. Verse 11 through 16 are all commands. In verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Now, if Paul is telling Timothy to command and teach these things, he's also telling you and me to obey. Right? If there's a command, there has to be an obedient response. If he's telling him to uh, command these things and to teach these things, there also has to be an obedient receiver of the message and a learner of the message. So verse 11 it, describes us as being teachable. If you ever get to a place where you don't need to learn, there's something wrong. If you ever get to a point where you feel like you already know all this, if you ever hear a sermon and say, I already know this. I already know, I've already heard this. I'm just going to tune out. I don't need to know this anymore. There's something wrong. Right? If you've ever become less teachable, if you're ever becoming less teachable and you're resistant to basic obedience and biblical teaching, listen, you're in danger of departure. You're in danger of departure if you're becoming less teachable, more resistant to basic doctrine and obedience. You're on the day, you're on the verge of departure. Verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, conduct, 
love, faith, and purity. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. How, how can you guard against departing? Be an example. Look at your life and see, is it an example? Are you an example in the way you talk? Are you an example in the way you behave? Are you an example in the way you love? Are you an example in the way you believe? And are you an example for holy living or for purity? When people look at your life, do they say, I would live like that. I would want to live like that. I I would like to pattern my life after this person. Listen, actions always speak louder than words. And if you consider yourself to be spiritual and close to God, but your actions are not exemplary in these areas, you're fooling yourself. The great theologian Forrest Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. What you do says way more about who you are than what you think of yourself. And so Paul is reminding Timothy to be an example. And so if you're not an example in all these areas, you're in the danger of departing. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading, to scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what we're doing right now. And so being devoted to the ministry of the word as the speaker and also as the hearer is critical to keep you from departing. If you ever grow tired of hearing the word, you're in danger of departure. I have a great vantage point. Uh, I can see your faces sometimes. The lights are low right now, but I can see your faces usually uh, when the lights are brighter. And there are times, not necessarily here in this room, but just in my past uh, of being in different churches and speaking, where I can see people straining under the message of the Word. Sometimes I think, Lord, does that mean? Is that just them? I don't know. Is it, am I boring? Am I a terrible speaker? Probably in some ways, but, but also I've seen people just continuously resist and struggle and squirm and roll their eyes and sigh and breathe deeply. Yes, I see you do those things. It's okay. Uh, I don't judge you for it. I've been there too. Um, but this straining under the Word, if you ever grow tired of hearing the Word, you're in danger of departure. Verse 14 is great. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. If I could sum this up, I would say don't neglect your giftedness. Do you know that you have a vital role in this church and in the kingdom? You have a vital role. And as you um, walk away from the body of believers or as you neglect the body or as you stay away, you are depriving, listen, you are depriving the body of your giftedness. God has uniquely wired you and blessed you and given you spiritual gifts to build up the body. And to the degree that you sit on those gifts is to the degree that you're moving toward departure. You are needed in a local body of believers. You are needed. Don't neglect your giftedness. Don't neglect your gift. Don't neglect your purpose in the body of Christ. If you find yourself pulling back from serving in your giftedness or sidetracked in doing something you're not gifted in, or if you're longing for rest, you could be in danger of departure. The beautiful thing about the Word, about the work of Christ, is that it's satisfying. Have you ever served in your giftedness and walked away feeling energized, not depleted? Have you ever done a a task that you're not getting paid for, but only because Christ has gifted you in that way? 
And as you serve in that way, you're enthused and you're energized and you could keep doing it over. That's the beauty of work in the kingdom, is that it doesn't drain you, it actually refreshes you. And the more you sit on that, the more you resist that, the more you sit out, you could be in danger of departure. The last two verses are just great summary verses. Practice these things. What do you practice? My, my son and I came out here last week and practiced free throws. And we went and played around the world for like an hour and a half. And I had to shoot left-handed. And I shot left-handed so that it wouldn't be one-sided. But I couldn't get past the first three blocks continuously. It took me like an hour. And after an hour and a half, I went all the way around, never chancing it, right? Always just shooting once with my left hand until I got all the way around and halfway back. And in the end, we just said, let's just quit, right? This is, this is taking forever, right? You practice anything you want to be better at. Paul is saying, practice these things. Practice what? Practice serving in your giftedness. Practice hearing the word and being a responsive to the word. Practice being teachable. Practice being an example. Practice in all these ways that he's mentioned. Training yourself for the faith. Practice, practice, practice. Immerse yourself in them. What does it mean to immerse yourself in these practices? Immerse yourself, right? You know what the word means. It's the Greek word baptizo. It's where we get the word baptism from. To immerse yourself is, the, is a textile word. That if you were uh, like Lydia, a person who um, dyed purple fabrics, right? This is a, an extremely wealthy occupation in, in these days because they would dive down and find these uh, little mussels on the edge of the Mediterranean that gave off a purple ink. Uh, and as they were very hard to find and they were very uh, expensive. And so as they would dive down, these people would get these mussels, they would collect them, they would boil them, and each one would produce just a little bit of purple ink. And it was a valuable thing for them to produce this ink and to plunge clothing into that. And that process of plunging clothes into that ink is the Greek word baptizo. And it pictures sinking something deep until it's fully saturated. Listen, how are you to not depart from the faith? It's by immersing yourself in these things. Immersing yourself. Practice these things so that everyone can see your progress. Everyone in this room should be able to see that you're immersing yourself, practicing, being an example being a student of the Word, being teachable, understanding good doctrine, fighting all these things. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Verse 16. For by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's an easy time to slouch away from the faith. Very easy. Very, very, very easy. Matter of fact, all you have to do is basically kind of give up. If you, if you just sort of give up, you'll drift into the current that's growing stronger against you. You ever waded in a river where the current is strong? It's hard to take a step. It's hard to take a step. It's hard to stay stand firm. But if, if you just let go, you'll just drift. And any one of you, any one of us, any one of me, any of us, could drift by doing nothing. It's an easy time to slouch away from the faith. I'll never forget it's the first time I've ever used this illustration, and I've been hoping to use it for like seven years. Uh, we had these wonderful neighbors uh, from Asia, and uh, my daughter was friends with the daughter. We were friends with the adults, the parents, and then they had their grandparents living with them. 
And we went over to their house a lot of times. But one time we went over, they gave us a tour. The first time we were going to have a cookout. And so we were walking through their house. And um, as they're walking through, we went into the grandparents' bedroom. And there was a window. And the window overlooked these two houses in the back with these two uh, large fireplaces. And there were two forks in a cup uh, sticking out uh, on the windowsill facing those two fireplaces. And so when we got downstairs, we're sitting on the patio. I'm sitting next to the grandfather. Daisy's sitting next to me. And we're talking and she's translating. And we're having this conversation. I said, hey, as we were looking through your house, I saw these two forks. I said this to Daisy. What are those two forks? And she um, looked at the father and, uh, and asked him, what, is, what are these two forks for? And he said, um, it's a feng shui thing. It's a thing where uh, we're trying to cancel out something. And so these two forks, um, these two fireplaces reminded me of these two incredible missionaries in China who used to come and share the gospel with us. And I hated these missionaries. And he started, to, I'm not hearing, I'm just hearing his language. I didn't hear the words, but he's saying, I hated these missionaries. And these forks reminded me, and he started making a stabbing motion. And he was getting real enthusiastic about how much he hated this pillar of truth, these strong fireplaces, and these, this feng shui thing was to cancel out that thing in his bedroom. And as he's sitting next to me, getting more animated and spitting across, looking at Daisy, um, I'm looking at Daisy saying, does he, does he know what I do? Like, I'm a missionary. I'm a, I'm a pastor, right? Does this, this, this guy want to, like, he's making stabbing noises. And I thought, this has never been a better time for me to not say what I do than this moment right here. And she said, yeah, he knows what you do. And I, and I just kind of looked at him and smiled like, you know, I hope you're okay. I hope you're better now. And uh, you know, I hope I'm going to be a good neighbor, but, but there's never been a better time for me to, to disregard my faith than that moment. Maybe there has been, but that's a good one. There's never been a better time for you to walk away, to depart from the faith. And the battleground starts in your mind, and it starts with doctrine, and it starts with your love, with your love for Jesus. Are you struggling? Don't struggle alone. Are you isolated? Come back in. Listen, I've said it all the time. This may not be the church for you. This may not be the church for you. There may be better churches where the Lord wants you. And so this isn't about me and my church and my kingdom and trying to make ridge lines. This is not that at all. I can recommend six churches within five miles right now. And I would be thrilled in my heart if you went there and plugged in if this isn't the place for you. This is about a sifting and you being a part, uh, connected to a vibrant body of believers who aren't afraid to speak truth to you in love. As you keep watch on yourself. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning today. Thank you for the strong word, for the doctrine, for the truth of your word. Jesus, you know how easy it is not by your own experience, but you know, because you understand us, how easy it is for us to drift. Would you help us not to drift from you? Would you help us to stay close, to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the doctrine? Would you help us to keep an eye on ourselves and on doctrine and on truth and on walking with you 
in spirit and truth, worshiping You. Lord Jesus, would You help us? I pray, Lord, that we would not depart from the faith as times get more difficult. Would You use this body of believers that we may be Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.